uh, verses 5 through 17, but let's start in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is a shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. Father God, give us courage this morning. We are a people prone to at times to prefer what you call darkness. Prone to not want to battle against it. Prone not to call evil what it is evil. And ignoring good in the process. Give us courage. Not out of a self-righteous spirit, a pharisaical heart, a legalistic heart. Give us courage because we have come to see the light. That is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, I've developed a newfound appreciation for seatbelts and road signs lately. Um because of the accident that happened right down the road. I, I am driving my cars, or the cars I have to borrow, because I still haven't gotten my truck back after almost two months, uh, with a hyper-awareness and vigilance, because I, I don't want to have what happened for somebody to run a stop sign to plow into me to happen again because of the physical pain. The, uh, the toll, even the financial toll, and the, the toll of time, and the damage, the migraines, the bad back, etc. 
the medical checkups I've had to do, the, the insurance paperwork and more insurance paperwork. It seems like every morning I have a request from the insurance companies for more paperwork as a consequence of someone not driving the way they should. And so it makes me extraordinarily, at the moment, cautious in my vehicle, on, on the alert. And, and now I'm, I'm going to let my guard down at some point, but that point I have not yet reached. Well, God in Scripture knows something about us. And we can kind of see it in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. He knows that we are prone to forget the warning signs of life. And today's sermon will really focus on two warning signs, two road signs that we are to heed as people of God. At the beginning of chapter 5, verse 5, but really even in the verses Rob read, we need first to beware of unbiblical sexual lifestyles. And second, beware of being consumed by greed. And why these two sins? Sex and greed. They aren't the only sins, of course, that Paul will talk about. But actually, these two sins share quite a bit in common. One of the main things they share in common is the fact that, especially in American culture, sex and greed are often promoted as humankind's most important cures to life suffering. We have a great many voters in the world, in the voter booth, politically speaking, who will vote exclusively for a candidate based on either their fiscal policy or their policy positions based on sex. These, we believe, can be the cures to the pains and sufferings that we endure. But let me repeat the main point. And so let me repeat that again. One of the main things that sex and greed share is they are often, especially in American culture, promoted as cheap and a quick cure for life suffering. Fix them, the world says, and life will no longer be so painful. Now, when it comes to suffering, the biblical has a different viewpoint. The Bible is an equal opportunity sufferer. It promises regardless of whether if you know Christ or you do not Christ, you will suffer. Regardless of the fact of if you have white skin, black skin, brown skin, or whatever hue, you will suffer. Regardless if you're a man or a woman, you will be made to suffer. Suffering will happen. And suffering isn't some idea that God has just signaled us out for abuse. No, suffering is something that humanity brought into the world through our sin. And that same suffering will ultimately always make you run to something. You know, the only time Jesus is ever depicted running and walking up ahead quickly and amazing the disciples in Scripture is in the Gospel of Mark as he runs to Jerusalem for the Passion. And when Jesus explains why he's so far ahead, because the, the disciples, they see this and they're afraid. It's not because Jesus has a death wish. We see all other places Jesus, he wanted another way if the past cup could pass. He ran up ahead because he hated our suffering in this world so much 
that he knew by his suffering in our place, he could create a real pathway to our freedom. That things like sexuality and greed cannot. And so our passage begins with road signs warning us. If you keep running to sex and greed for relief, don't be surprised to discover you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. The judgment day to come. Also, this passage makes clear God's design for his people is and always has been that we have a sexual ethic, that we have a moral ethic, and a material ethic different from the world's ethic. Now, the New Testament world's sexual ethic, the world of Paul, really wasn't all that different from America's ethics today. Honestly, outside the plastic surgeon's scalpel, their sexual ethics very well could have been worse. People also ran to opulence and greed in Paul's society, and they acquired those things, possibly even in ways more wicked than, than uh, wealth in today's day, and how people covet wealth in today's society. And I want you to take from this the fact that, really, in these verses, there is this kind of assumption that Paul makes throughout the New Testament church age. That the church is always going to be swimming upstream against the sexual culture of the world and the material culture of the world. There is nothing new under the sun until the Son of God returns. Sex and greed cannot cure the deepest longings of our heart, and yet, constantly, the world will run to these things in order to cure cure it. Looting a target has never cured anyone's ultimate suffering. may have masked it for a short time, but it's never cured suffering. Likewise, if you had Bill Gates' bank account today, Christian, it won't end your suffering. Of course, we'd all love to give it a try, but, you know, it really is true. It will not alleviate our suffering. Sex outside, the design that God has given it to be a blessing unto his people will never alleviate suffering. It might mask it, but again, it will never alleviate suffering. And even within the confines of how God ordains it, while God sanctifies it, he blesses it in a biblical marriage, and it can be great and wonderful, it never is supposed to be our end-all and be-all. And so as we live in a culture that is trying to alleviate the universal condition of suffering in such things such as sex and greed... And sometimes, if we're so honest, we walk those pathways ourselves. We must, as Christians then, guard our steps. Guard the pathways of escape we take in life's moments of suffering. And then we have a warning in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What are empty words when it comes to sexuality? What are empty words when it comes to greed? Empty words are words that don't come from God. It's that simple. Empty words are words that don't come from an authority. Don't come from the ultimate authority, which is God's truth. You know, if Bridget walked up to me after church and said, Dad, I need $2,000 from you. I'm going to laugh her off. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, I'm going to give you $2,000. Sure. If the tax collector of Wyoming County, however, contacts me after church and says, I need $2,000 for you from your property in Mahoopany, well, 
he's an authority. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heed that. I'm going to um, give that to him. And in the American church, there is a troubling crisis of watching churches surrender to empty words, both left and right, that shouldn't be listened to. Now, what are the empty words when it comes to greed? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that no one can serve two masters, God and money. If money rules you, ultimately it means Christ doesn't rule over you. So what are you becoming wealthy for? What are the things you want to accomplish with wealth, the wealth you acquire? We can even ask this of fundraisers like the oyster picnic. What do we ultimately want to accomplish with that event? We should really ask ourselves that. What are we putting all the work in for? I love that this church has made a, a point of it. Every year I've been blessed to serve here. It's now three. I'm coming, working on year four. But I love that this church has made a point that every year of the oyster picnic that has happened in the last three to make sure we are found donating the revenues of the oyster picnic to a variety of mission works in our community, nation, and beyond. It helps answer the question better than the alternative answer we could seek after. Uh, It just helps fill the church coffers. It's a good step. But of course, an even better event is one where we go closer as a community. And even better than that is one where Christ's saving gospel is shared with those who come. We want to be careful to not be motivated by greed as individuals or even as a church. Especially by greed in regard to the things we do for God. Greed is a real danger. We are the wealthiest society the world has ever produced. Even those we consider poor in America are wealthy by historic standards of poverty. We are at risk to succumbing to a lifestyle of being more and more greedy rather than more and more generous. So we always need to be on guard over our hearts. How about empty words when it comes to sexuality? Now there is the easier target to hit of the LGBTQ variety. They are the easiest ones because those are the ones that our largest corporations uh, love to celebrate and the news stations love to talk about ad nauseum because again, we see this as an alleviation of suffering in the public square. However, empty words and sexuality also deal with a whole host of sins far more creative than any single month in June can cover. Sex outside of marriage. That's an empty kind of thing as well. Adultery. Oh, how empty adultery is. Illicit images and videos. These are empty kinds of things too that bring us no ultimate peace. And I think I'll stop there. And I think that passage actually commends us to stop and not go too far with this. Because as this passage points out, there are even the kinds of things that go on in sexuality that shouldn't even be bothered to be spoken about. We're not to be about those kinds of things as Christians. And sadly, the human condition is one that loves to try and push the bar a little further when it comes to what is sexually acceptable to our detriment. 
A whole host of churches will give empty words or twist God's words to try and make things that God clearly states are not good for us sexually in both the Old and New Testament seem okay. And by the way, when God tells us something is not good for us, he's not saying it because he likes to boss us around or bully us into submission. This is the God who can never lie. When he says to us, don't do these things, it's not good for you, he does it because we shouldn't do those things, it's not good for our soul. It's nothing cryptic in that. However, let me also be clear, Christian, something I will get into more deeply later. Do not be mean. Do not be cruel to someone struggling either with sexual sins or sins of greed. I know I've been guilty of that. We are not called to do such things. And then in verse 7, Paul takes this point a step further. Do not become partners with them. That means we want to be careful when we select, for instance, after the oyster picnic, the types of mission works we're going to support. We, we should probably be careful to make sure we are not partnering and helping groups that we, God warns us against. Or even, for example, unfortunately, this is not being considered in the EA, to my knowledge. If the EA went down the path of the UCC, which this church had to separate from, we too would once again as a church have to band together to in order to separate ourselves from ungodly associations. Do not partner with them, the warning here is. And why? Well, it's because, and, and Paul describes it in this light and dark imagery in verses 8 through 12, there is a conflict going on in this world. And God, through the power of the Spirit, has shined his light on the conflict through the Spirit-enlightened believer so that we as new creations in Christ can now be walking as children of the light, as verse 8 says. We are supposed to remember what it's like, in one sense, to stumble around in the darkness and, and grow from that. You know that horrible pain that you sometimes have late at night as you're walking around the house and haven't turned on the, the light switch? What is it? You stub your, your toe, right? All of a sudden it shoots up. You're like, ah, you're like hopping around on one foot. Might have some choice French words that you offer. And what do you usually do in those circumstances? You turn on the light so that you can see if you have that opportunity or you, you, you consider your steps more, more wisely when you do that. We need to be mindful. And God has shown us the light and so that we don't go back to, to walking in patterns of darkness. By the way, have you also stubbed your toes sometimes with the light on? I have. But it helps. You know, you can kind of figure out at least what you quickly stubbed your toe on and, and avoid it rather quickly. You don't have to go searching for the night light. We're supposed to be wiser than that. We're supposed to be guarding ourselves in the light. We're supposed to see the wisdom of staying in the light, of appreciating the fact that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have had a light turned on for us, so let us go towards that light. Let me also say this. Paul, in a couple times in our passage today, calls, talks about foolish people. 
And people are fools because they know better. If I took everything I have in my freezer at the parsonage and put it into the back of my car and rolled up all the windows and three days later came back in order to have some of the shrimp in my car. What's going to happen? The shrimp is going to be awful. It's not going to be good for me. What what if I go through with it? I eat the shrimp. It's going to make me sick. I'm the fool in that scenario. I know better. I've been offered better. And, as verse 11 makes clear, because we know better, it's not enough that we don't do foolish things, but we are to be a warning to those who do foolish things. Don't do that. It's not good for you. God's word actually makes clear if we must be willing to expose to others the unfruitful and foolish nature of working against God's organic design. You know, going back to the toe example, my wife was about to walk in the same place I stubbed my toe in. What should I do as a loving individual? Warn her so that she doesn't fall into the same injury. I should shine the light so that she might better see and avoid injury herself. That's another sad thing about so many Christian churches in America as they conform morally not closer to God's word, but to the empty words of the world. By doing so, they are actually failing to love their neighbor. They are failing to love their loved ones. While they claim, they will claim their position to be a more loving one because it's more tolerant, Since when is tolerating something that God clearly tells us will do people great harm, a good quality? Verse 11 doesn't believe that's a good idea. As Paul makes clear from verses 11 to 14, we Christians are supposed to shine a spotlight on those things that God calls unfruitful and not good in order to help people out of compassion. I want you to imagine that we're back in World War II and you're a soldier outside a, a Nazi prison camp. A, a, a concert. He is about to create a breach. He's about to create a tunnel into the camp so that people can escape. People can get out of it. People can go to freedom. People can go be rescued in the light of day. And, and before he goes and does this, he's, he's going to have to sacrifice his life in order to create this tunnel. He says to us, after I pass, after I go to the place that I am going, please go throughout the camp and let them know of the escape that I have offered to them. And of course, I'm sure you can pick up on the fact that really what I'm describing is Christ and his cross and the great commission of Christ. And what do we often do in American churches, especially today? After he has created that breach, after he has created the tunnel, the place of rescue. We go through it. We say, oh, no, no, don't go in there. You'll have to change. His his free 
freedom, they'll still be suffering. Just, just go on tolerating the, the place that you find yourself in. Don't go there. Don't. I mean, the Nazis might hunt you, hunt you down. They might kill you. They might take your life. You'll be criticized. They'll be really angry when you leave them and their perspective and their world and where they keep you locked up. Don't go there. Far too many Christian churches are practically teaching that kind of idea in their pulpits today in empty words and by the world's philosophies. Fearing the escape routes to sin that Jesus has provided us and given us in his sacrificial offering. And Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 5, especially from verses 6 to 14a, no, 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 that is not how this is supposed to go. We are supposed to be encouragers of the great rescuer and of the great rescue, of a greater freedom, not found in worldly sexuality, not found in greed, but by going through the breach towards the freedom found in Christ. Learning to look more like the one who sacrificed his life in order to create that breach. You know another really helpful illustration that this concentration camp illustration can provide? It's for another problematic area in Christianity. And it's this. Some of the most vile things I have ever witnessed as a Christian is how some try and call others into the tunnel of safety, into the tunnel of freedom. I just want you to imagine, and this was not the case. I I, I have on my phone, oh, I don't have my phone in my pocket, that's the microphone, Uh, a picture of my wife in her wedding dress today. But I want you to imagine, let's take back, let's pretend we're at our wedding, and my bride is coming towards me. And I start shouting vile things like, I don't like how you look down there. You're not beautiful down there. I don't really want you to come as you are down there. You need to first get over here and maybe I'll start liking you. If I try to call her down the aisle like that, what would that seem like? That seemed winsome. You know, this passage uses the illustration of a Waco sleeper. This is another illustration of what I'm talking about. How do you like to be woken up? You know, regardless of who does it in marriage, if I wake up my wife or she wakes me up, like, kind of yelling at me, how do you, what's your first response? You know, you, you, you don't like it. It's not pleasant. How, how do we really like to be woken up? It doesn't mean that sometimes we might not have to be in a situation where we have to say something loudly and boldly, but let us not forget to be winsome. There is a more winsome way. We are calling the bride of the greater groomsman into deeper relationship with him. 
And so really the illustration isn't even with me as the bridegroom. It would be like I was sitting in the pews and I'm watching a wedding and I'm talking about how ugly the bride is and how the groom should run. It's an, it's an ugly illustration. And we're not to be people like that. And then verse 15 tells us, Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then verse 16 adds that we should be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. How how do we often start our mornings? Do we start them first off and foremost with a cry of, How can I please you today, Lord? How can I please you? I wish I did that. I was just I was thinking of that this week and how guilty I am of so rarely starting my day in prayer. I often pick up the phone besides my bed. Beside my bed, I should leave it downstairs, honestly, to charge. And I first scour to see if I have any one of those early ministry morning texts. Eureka! I don't. All right, let me kill some time reading the news. My wife, on the other hand, her favorite pastime is to run downstairs and partake in her favorite Colombian drug of choice. Coffee, of course. That's what it is. What Paul is saying in verse 16 is, Christians, we need to consider the best use of our time. It actually can be translated from the Greek word. We need to buy back our time once we become Christians. We need to redeem our time. We need to secure more of it for the sake of Christ. Can you imagine if you buy back time? I know some of you would pay more than this for me, but I would, what I wouldn't give to just have one year in my 21-year-old body where I was greatly less weight on me and uh, greatly more able to, uh, to do feats of strength and, and fun. And how much time have I wasted in my life? Oh, how wasteful have I been? And what Paul is saying here in verse 16 is, Christian, you need to have the courage to be constantly evaluating how you're spending your time. Maybe for some of us, we need to talk with others and allow them to help us with our time. We should really be people who look at our schedules and ask ourselves, what are we doing in the hours we have? What's our time management with God like? You know, I have the pleasure of having intimate conversations with people at a whole host and array of seasons of life. And it's almost always true. I think it's always true. The longer life goes on, the more it seems that we realize how short it is. The Christian is supposed to appreciate that and order their lives in such a way where God and the various ministries he gives us take priority. So for me, that means my roles as, such as a Christian, a father, a husband, a son, a friend, an uncle, a brother, a pastor, a college professor, a teacher, a laborer, and other titles I hold. I need to look at these various ministries and say, what's the balance like right now? Should I arrange my time a little bit better? We need to have the courage to ask ourselves, are there things right now that we are dedicated to and we give a lot of time to that would be far better for us if we cut out? Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to at times to find times of recreation. 
even when the world was perfect, he still gave us a Sabbath day. He still gave us a Sabbath, a day free from all work. But still, if you were to write out in a calendar a detailed list of all that you would do in the next week, how much of it would not qualify as redeemed time? How much of it would ultimately be wasteful and should be cut out? I think time is one of the hardest things for Christians to both master and truly give unto the Lord. It might be hardest, especially for young families. My child might not get to do what? Yet God tells us, redeem the time. What lessons do you want to be teaching your children about the balance of time? When it comes to the time management in your homes, what things tend to rise to greatest importance? Are they the kinds of things that God commends as wise? And let me be clear. Just because you dedicate time in your household to having a good balance of time, that doesn't unfortunately mean all our children will be believers. Even good management doesn't mean good employees in the workspace, and it doesn't mean so, unfortunately, in the household. Sometimes still children leave the faith, But teaching them to carve out time is a good endeavor in the household. God cares about how we manage the time. And then we come to the last verse. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We've already spent some time on the idea of foolishness. Foolishness is for someone, describe someone who knows better. If we have seen the beauty of Christ, if we have beheld him through the saving power of the Spirit, we know better. We know better if we beheld Christ. If we know Jesus, we know better. We live in a sinful age. This passage has made clear. And the New Testament church will always be battling things like sexual sins and sins of greed. And so we need to tread carefully in who and what we listen to, and the words we esteem. We also need to delicately but boldly warn others it's time to escape the current prisons they confine themselves to. A breach has been made in Jesus. And why should we escape such sins like greed and and sex? Because we love the one who went into the ground, dead, in order to create a pathway for us to be set free. Jesus is the only one who can free us from our present suffering. And so our call is to trust him and his words and let others know the way of escape from the suffering we endure in our lives. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, help us to reorder our lives, to spend more time in your light, to not be attracted to darkness. Make the false words of the world that have no weight or measure in eternity not be ones that we are convinced by or give heed to. Let us instead, Lord, offer a better word, a delicate word, but a bold word, a word that can bring down mountains, a word that can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Let us, Lord, share 
with a world that does not know you. The saving work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And now let us as a congregation take a moment to privately consider and confess our sins.